All right. Hi, everybody. It's RCFB Talk 85. My name is Bob Akhairi, and I'm going to be joined by my co-host, J.D. Moore. And we're going to have a special guest today. We're going to have Andy Staples. Andy Staples, many of you know him. He's a writer for The Athletic, radio on Sirius FM, podcast The Andy Staples Show and Friends. And prior to joining The Athletic, he covered college football for Sports Illustrated for over 10 years. He's got a nice history, really interesting one. We're going to actually ask him about some of his earlier years. J.D., are you up here? Yes, we are up here. Very excited to be talking with Andy today, a longtime fan, at least right here, for Andy Staples' writing, uh, everything that he's written, especially not just about college football, but food, culture, everything else that he's had, especially as an athlete himself. He, of course, was a walk-on lineman during the Steve Spurrier heyday of the Florida Gators when they won that 96 national championship. I'm sure we'll talk to him a little bit about that as well, but fantastic columnist, fantastic radio host, very excited to be hosting him here in just a moment. I know Andy's going to be up any second. Actually, was just chatting with him in DMs, so we're going to have him up here in a moment. Lots of things we're going to talk to him about. Actually, we just read, he had an article like about Oklahoma football, and I know JD and I were discussing it offline. Before we came up tonight and it was interesting it was about the struggle that the Sooners are facing and whether or not it's going to be what sort of defines them and helps them sort of build up again as they had in the SEC play what did you think about that article JD well first and foremost again uh, I am a TCU alum so anytime I get to hear anything about uh, you know TCU being able to force somebody else to, to go into a hard reset always going to delight in that but it's a fantastic breakdown of taking a look at you know some of these programs that have turned into these world beaters uh, especially like in Alabama that needed a 2007 season with losses to ULM and Nick Saban requiring his boosters to really get into what is needed to build a national championship contender uh, Andy Staples makes a very strong case that this was the moment that Brent Venables needed you know it's one thing to feel a little bit of pain to see Lincoln Riley take a different job to have an inconsistency in head coaching for the first time in 20 years but it's something else entirely to be completely surprised not just by Kansas State but also TCU just coming in and absolutely throwing down on Oklahoma especially after they had been struggling against uh, you know, the Sooners for so long after they had joined the Big 12, this was a definitive win for TCU and definitely a definitive loss for Oklahoma. I think everybody kind of expected at least a step back with Brent Venables in his first year of head coaching. Uh, I don't think anybody had expected, you know, giving up 50 plus points to TCU uh, under Sonny Dykes or, uh, you know, having back to back losses after losing again to Kansas State. Uh, but we're going to talk with Andy about that article because it's a fantastic insight on, you know, when you see these programs take these huge losses, like when Clemson had the huge blowout in the Orange Bowl against West Virginia and how they turned that into this is what we need to use as our measuring stick to actually feel pain and to know we can't be complacent with being good. We need to improve to great. It's going to be a fantastic conversation with Andy. You know, another topic I wanted, we're going to definitely bring up with him, is are the coaching changes that have been happening. I mean, I know it was interesting in his last column where he's answering reader questions, Dear Andy, Wisconsin was actually the first question that he addressed. J.D., what do you think about Wisconsin situation? Man, the Wisconsin situation is very unusual. I think it's a, oh, and I see Andy has now popped into the chat. So uh, as we continue to talk about Wisconsin and several other things, I am looking forward to seeing Andy come on up here. I know that uh, Bob Ack is going to get this invite out here in just a moment. Just um, there we go. And of course, uh, this Wisconsin situation, I'm sure Andy will have a lot of thoughts as well. He did the emergency podcast. Uh, Andy, it looks like you are up and on here. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I appreciate you guys inviting me on. I, the Wisconsin thing's fascinating to me because if you, on its surface, it feels like the most un-Wisconsin thing ever. It feels like a very rash move for a very deliberate athletic department. But when you think about it more, they're giving Jim Leonard seven games to prove that he can be the successor. And I think that's really why this is happening when it is. I think that's the main thrust of this because there will be a, a loud drumbeat for Lance Leipold. He's a Wisconsin Whitewater grad. He won multiple Division Three national titles at Wisconsin Whitewater. 
So I think this is to give Jim Leonard the best shot he can have at taking over that job. I think the other thing, too, is, you know, we always say that this is a very un-Wisconsin thing. I mean, it's you got to go back to, what, 1989? Yeah. From the last time that they fired a uh, football coach in, like, 95 from when they fired any type of coach. Uh, when they fired, I believe, it was Van Gundy uh, as the basketball coach. But uh, when you also look at it, it almost seems like a very Wisconsin way to make a very abrupt seeming decision because, you know, Barry Alvarez built this program in a very specific mold. He had Brett Bielema take over after that. They did one chance with Gary Anderson to try something different, said, nope, went back to that original offensive coordinator and Paul Christ. Uh, and now it seems like they're continuing that succession of, you know, we want a Wisconsin man who knows the Wisconsin system. Uh, granted, he's now going to get this extra time, uh, which is the abrupt one, but presumably, I mean, I know Lance Leipold uh, is probably going to be one of those loud uh, voices to be heard on he should take over the job, but are there really any other considerations right now besides him or uh, Leonard? I think maybe Dave Miranda, because you've got a guy who was successful as a Wisconsin defensive coordinator. You mentioned Gary Anderson doing something different. One of the different things was Dave Miranda shows up running a 3-4 and that's something they've continued to do. Now, if you look at what Dave Aranda's done at Baylor, the initial offense he ran under Larry Fedora was not very good. They weren't very good. He hires Jeff Grimes. They run. They start running the BYU offense. It's not the same thing that Wisconsin does. Wisconsin is a more I-formation gap scheme type team. Uh, Baylor is a more outside zone type, scene, type team. But the fact of the matter is Baylor is still a big physical offense and they're going to punch you in the mouth. And so I think what Dave does would fit very well at Wisconsin. That said, I still think everything sort of trends toward Jim Leonard being the guy continuing to, to have that identity. Cause that's the thing with Wisconsin that I think you look at these other programs that are, that are, that have openings. They're trying to find out what they are. They're trying to figure out their identity. Wisconsin knows what it is. We know what a Wisconsin football team should look like. And I think that is a huge bonus. And so if you can find somebody who will allow you to keep that identity, then you're going to do that. So I think that's the, that's the reason behind the push to give Leonard the biggest chance he can get. Andy, I'm very excited to talk more football with you. But, of course, I know that you were coming in a little late because of a new bet that you had with Ari. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about, uh, you know, being you being able to have a steak dinner and uh, Ari getting to learn a little bit more about uh, the customs and traditions that one has to experience when you're in College Station. Uh, what can you tell us about this bet that y'all had? Well, we didn't. It, this was not a bet. This was just we're, we're on a road trip. And what I wanted to do was kind of show him – the SEC from the inside. He, he's never been to a big on-campus SEC game. He went to A&M Arkansas at Jerry World a few weeks ago, but he's never been to one on campus. And so we picked this one before the season started. And, and obviously, A&M Alabama, you know why we picked it. Everything that happened between Nick Saban and, Jim, and Jimbo Fisher in May, we figured, oh, this is going to be spicy. Well, it is very spicy, but for very different reasons. And so we're in College Station right now. Uh, we met up with one of the Yale leaders today. So Ari is actually married to an Aggie, but had he, he it's funny. This, this is a, a little trip inside the mind of Ari Wasserman. He's been watching Yell leader videos obsessively, just trying to figure out what they're saying, what all the moves mean. And so we get to college station today and we'd set up a meeting with one of the senior Yale leaders. And it's a guy named Kip and, he took us through a lot of this stuff and explained a lot of the stories behind everything. And there's a little bit on Twitter that I've put out already, a little on Instagram. But if you want to hear the whole thing, you can hear it on the podcast tomorrow. It's hysterical. The, this guy, Kit, is amazing. He's awesome. But he explains all this stuff. And Ari's like trying to do the moves and trying to make the noises and trying to speak the language. And uh, it, it's pretty incredible. So we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to work our way out of Texas into uh, Louisiana, Mississippi tomorrow. Uh, we're going to be at Ole Miss on Wednesday. We're going to be in Tuscaloosa on Thursday. And then we're going to the game on Saturday. So it's he's going to understand 
the SEC a lot better after this week, I think. But uh, it was really fun getting to know what the yell leaders do. Because, you know, A&M's a new SEC school. And I think people look at it like, these guys are weird. What is going on here? And I think one of the things that makes college football so great is that everybody has their own thing. Everybody has their traditions. These are the things that we've been doing for 75 or 100 years. And, you know, everybody else thinks they're strange. But to the people that do them, they're sacred or they're just something that that gives them really good feelings about the time they were in college. And, you know, you look at those yell leader videos, the, the, the midnight yell practice videos. And it's interesting because if they shot those videos from the back of the yell leaders, where if you were looking into the crowd, you would see that they're talking to 40,000 people at midnight on a Friday night. And that's just wild to me. You know, I didn't go to Texas and I went to Florida. You couldn't get that many people at Florida Field on a Friday night. You just never could. But at Texas A&M, at, in College Station, the bars empty out at midnight. And they're, they're at midnight yell. And they're listening to these crazy, corny stories that the, the yell leaders are telling. And they're doing all these crazy, weird, predetermined movements. But to them, it is second nature. It's tradition. And it's just cool. Like that it was, it was great learning about it. And so watch that video tomorrow when it comes out on the podcast, it'll be on our YouTube channel on the Andy Staples show. And I, it's just fun. And I think letting Ari get to, to experience some of this stuff, experience some of these towns, I think is, is a lot of fun because I've been very lucky in my job. I've gotten to, so I got the, the job at sports illustrated in 2008 and then moved to the athletic in, in 2019 and I've gotten to go to a lot of these schools and, and see what all this stuff is about. And after a while, you almost take it for granted. But to watch somebody experience it for the first time is really cool. Like before the, the press conference where the AM players talked and Jimbo Fisher talked, I, I walked him out onto Kyle Field and he's just staring up at the stadium. And it's like, wow, this is amazing. And he's trying to picture it full. And I'm thinking back to, and I cover that 2016 Tennessee Texas A&M game. I think it was double overtime. And I remember Trevor Knight was the quarterback for A&M. I think Josh Dobbs was Tennessee's quarterback. And I remember them meeting at, at the mid midfield right before overtime started. And both of them are just smiling like, can you even believe this is happening right now? And so Get, letting somebody else see that for the first time and so he's gonna he, he'll be he'll see his first game at brighton any stadium on saturday and i can't wait like i cannot wait i was telling kip the the yell leader who uh who taught us all this stuff today i was saying okay make sure you're on the field 30 minutes before the game when they start doing sweet home alabama when they play sweet home alabama because you'll you'll tell your grandkids about it and you know right before alabama takes the field when Bear Bryant's voice comes over the loudspeaker. Like you will tell your grandkids about that because it's just cool. So I'm, I'm very excited that Ari gets to experience all this stuff for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I laugh because as you mentioned, that incredible game between Tennessee and Texas A&M, that was also my first experience uh, down oh, in College wow. Station. Uh, and I was actually covering that game uh, for a previous entity. So I got to be on the field for that exact moment, uh, you know, when the fumble happened to go kick off yes. overtime, just to hear the explosion of the 12th man. Uh, I went to the midnight yell the night before that. And again, I thoroughly recommend to everybody, go experience it at least once you will walk out confused and horrified but you will also be amazed you will also be well, amazed at what you see in that i i understand it so much more now because he told me some of this like i didn't realize the whoops there's there's a different whoop for each class whether you're a freshman mm -hmm. sophomore junior mm -hmm. senior so now i know why because it's the wildcat that was in the hills outside college station that they sent the freshman out to shoot and he couldn't do it and the sophomore couldn't do it and the junior couldn't do it, but the senior did it. Mm -hmm. 
All facts, all facts. And, you know, at least at uh, College Station in Texas A&M lore, all lore is fact. And again, I thoroughly cannot recommend enough to y'all. Go to a game down there. Go try the Midnight Yell. Just go witness something that you cannot find at any other university. Yeah, I I have to just add to that. Whenever I hear about the traditions at Texas A&M and and some of the other schools, but A&M in particular, it reminds me of, old school tradition in schools i mean some of the wackiness you hear in like britain you know i mean <laughs> exactly. the rugby rugby in the rugby college school which was more of a you know a high school when we were talking colleges in england and in, in the commonwealth like they freaking invented rugby that's why it's called that because a student there invented it or you know like westminster abbey the school attached to it they have this whole thing where they toss a pancake in the air and then the students fight for it for a minute that's like the tradition so when right. you see things at AM, it's like, oh, we, we, they, they're even, we're all predecessors, uh, you know, or successors to the British, you know, school tradition. And they, well, it's, it's like, it's stuff. like the term, it's like the term boat raced is based on the boat race between exactly. Oxford and Cambridge. <laughs> the oldest college rivalry, you could, uh, you could argue easily. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Molly, you've been really patient. I know you've wanted to, to ask a question, and we'd love to have you. Again, if any of you out there want to have a question for Andy or want to just chime in, we'd love to hear from you. Just hit request. And that's the moment the mic monster struck. It always tends to come up at the weirdest second. So when you get a chance on mute, Molly, we'd love to hear from you. You know, Andy, uh, one thing I did want to ask you about. Oh, wait, Molly, now we can hear you. What's up? I hear a lot of squealing from your microphone. It feels like whistling. It feels like somebody's whistling at a practice. Yeah. <laughs> or is it more of a fire alarm? I can't tell. <laughs> well, once you get that sorted out, we'd love to hear from you. We're going to just, we're going to go ahead and remove that. And let's see if we can get that started again. Anyway, but Eddie, I was, was curious because you started football kind of late. You, you sort of halfway through high school got be, uh, started with the sport. Well, not not halfway. So it was my sophomore year, and actually, I I I quit the team my freshman year because I was tired of doing belly busters, or some people call grass drills, and some people call up downs and push ups. And I walked off the field, and it was one of the most embarrassing things I've ever done in my life, and I felt awful about it. And I remember saying to the coach, "You don't need me," and I felt terrible my freshman year and every time I passed somebody who played on the freshman football team at my high school I thought I I was just so ashamed and I didn't want people to think of me that way and so I was like you know what I'm going out again for JV as a sophomore and I am going to I'm going to stick this out and it's funny because the the coach that was so hard on everybody as a freshman well they moved him up to JV so I still had to go through all that stuff and I'm glad I did. It was it was really good for me. Uh, I was too fat to play Pop Warner football. I weighed too much as as a youngster, so it was that was the first chance I had to play tackle football, and I, I I'm glad I did because I learned so much about myself. And you know, you you figure out okay, what what can you take and and what can you endure, and you learn that you really kind of like the idea of you get to go to practice and you just get to hit hit people and nobody gets in trouble and you know there's no penalty for it there's no punishment for it and so I think I just needed an I needed that attitude adjustment and it was very helpful and it has been very helpful for me going forward in life to to realize hey you can make a mistake like I did my freshman year which was it was an incredibly stupid mistake if I'd have just hung in there maybe that finished that day I'd have been fine. I'd have just gone right through. And and so getting a chance to, to have a do-over, I think, was really good for me. And I learned, hey, sometimes you got to stick stuff out. It's going to be hard. And there, there might not feel like there's a reward at the end of the rainbow. But you keep doing it, and it works out for you. And I think that's what happened for me. And it, it's interesting because so I was on the – junior varsity my my sophomore year at Lake Mary High School in in Orlando and we were a decent enough program we had multiple D1 prospects on our team but we were a pretty average 6A school in Florida when when 6A was the the biggest classification at the time and i kind of figured out as a junior in high school okay i, I might be kind of good at this 
And that was, that was a very interesting revelation because we had like our left tackle that year had like 75 scholarship offers and he signed with Florida and our best seat tackle signed with Georgia. And it was like, okay, so maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do this past high school. Who knows? And so it, it, it's one of those things that you, you think, okay, I'm just here to prove that I can do this because I, I did the stupid thing my freshman year of high school and I don't want people to think of me that way. And then you realize, oh, I kind of like this. Andy, it sounds like you almost had a little bit of a hard reset yourself uh, when it came to your football life. And kind of speaking on those uh, hard resets, I love the column that you dropped today about this TCU and Oklahoma game where this is kind of that pain that Oklahoma gets to feel to do a hard reset and kind of want to start to push through and do the type of investment that, say, Alabama did when they lost to ULM in 2007 or any other program that's now in that playoff hunt consistently uh, was able to do when they were able to feel some true pain for the first time. Uh, I would love to hear a little bit more about uh, your perspective on that and uh, how you uh, came uh, about with this column. So that was originally going to be a, a little bit different kind of story. I went after week one to Norman and talked to a bunch of people because – one thing that, that I had learned talking to folks in Oklahoma was that they were a little surprised at how many people left with Lincoln Riley. And they thought, okay, so they'd already set aside some money for leaving for the SEC and, you know, any sort of upgrades that they would do staff wise, facility wise to go into the SEC. But the thought was, well, if Lincoln Riley were still there, everything would be much more gradual because obviously they've been very successful under Lincoln Riley. I think if, if Riley had stayed at Oklahoma, Kayla Williams is obviously still there, you know, maybe Jordan Addison transfers there. So we'd be sitting here watching Oklahoma's offense dominate people. Don't think their defense would be much better. I think it'd be kind of similar to what it is now, but because he left and because a, a surprising amount of people left with him, it gave them a chance to kind of have a blank canvas. And so I think now they have a chance to evaluate where they are and look at the Alabamas and the Georges and say, how do we, how do we do what they're doing? How do we make ourselves like them? Now this is happening. And, and the story I was going to do was about that. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen them just get smoked by Kansas state where they were physically dominated up front. And then TCU beats them. And not only were they physically dominated up front on defense, schematically, the defense just didn't work, either either because the players haven't learned it or the coaches haven't taught them well enough. I'm not entirely sure who's responsible here. But some of that stuff, those big plays were ugly. Like, you don't see those busts, but maybe once a season – there were two horrific pass coverage busts in that game that I, I just couldn't believe, you know, where, where you've got an inside receiver that is running straight down the field and the safety or corner that's next to him looks at him and goes, okay, I'm going to pass you off to the next zone, but there is no next zone. There's no, there's no other DB to pick them up. And that happened twice. You know, if that happens once, usually, you get that correct. It happened twice. And so it does feel like they are feeling the kind of pain. And I talked to that, that turnip seed who he's with Brent Venables now at Oklahoma, but he was at Alabama when Nick Saban got there. Dabo hired him at Clemson in 2013 to help build that program infrastructure wise into what it is now. And he said, I think it's because Oklahoma has not felt that kind of pain. They've not felt like they needed to do any sort of serious changes because they really have been really good most of their most of everybody's life. And, you know, it, it, it's kind of true. The 90s were pretty painful for Oklahoma. And like the John Blake era led directly to the Bob Stoops era, which was a correction. But in the 21st century, Oklahoma has just been good. And it was interesting talking to people who'd been there a while and you hear a lot of them say something to the tune of, 
well, we won a lot of games here. And the, the meaning of that is we don't need these people from the outside coming in to tell us how to win games. But the thing is, they do need that. They need someone to explain it to them because the SEC is a different animal. You know, when you move from competing with TCU and Kansas State and Oklahoma State and Baylor for the conference title to competing with Alabama and Georgia for the conference title, the world is a very different place. And those schools will do anything to stay on top of the college football universe. Oklahoma isn't there yet. Oklahoma isn't there from a recruiting standpoint. They're not there from from a just schematic standpoint. And they've got to figure out how to get there. They've got, you know, maximum three years to figure it out. The 20, 2025 is the latest that they will be in the SEC. If I had to guess, I'd say it's probably going to be 2024. Because that's when the new TV contract starts. So they have to figure it out and be better than they are now because right now they're not capable of competing with the old misses and Mississippi States. I mean, if you're going to go get smoked by TCU, if you're going to go in, like, I would not be shocked if Kansas is favored against them, which is just a wild thing to think about, but you're not ready for the sec yet. You've got to upgrade on a lot of fronts. And I think the fact that they are dealing with what, what they consider to be the bottom. I mean, other programs would be like, listen, you guys, you guys haven't suffered yet. But for Oklahoma, which is which is one of the highest floor programs in the country, I think I think the only program with a higher floor than Oklahoma is Ohio State. They're just not used to this. I think they're going to look at this and say, you know what, we've got to make some changes. Let's get it done. Let's get ready to be in the SEC. And. I think if you look at them historically, if you look at Oklahoma, how, how much they've been aligned, how successful they've been over the decades, I actually think Oklahoma will wind up being just fine in the SEC. But it may be that this year is pretty ugly, and it kind of forces them to, to make the changes that make it possible to be better when they get to the SEC. So when you look at Oklahoma right now and what they need to do to be able to compete in the SEC, what are you looking at specifically in this is the number one thing that they have to address? Is it recruiting? Is it scheme? Is it infrastructure? Is it uh, building up support staff and analysts? What is the first thing that you immediately go, this is a huge problem that needs to be solved ASAP? It feels like they know what they need to do from a staffing perspective, and it also feels like they, need to do, they know what they need to do from a facilities perspective. It is line of scrimmage recruiting, offensive, defensive lines. That's what they've, they've got to get better at. And I understand why elite defensive line recruits have not wanted to sign with Big 12 teams over the past five, six years. It makes sense. They're, they're not producing a ton of NFL players. The, a lot of the old Big 12 offenses were kind of catch-and-throw offenses, so there wasn't much you could do, even if you were a good defensive tackle, a good edge rusher. There wasn't much you could do to get to the quarterback. That has changed. I, I will say that. So people who don't watch much Big 12 probably think it's still all air raid. It's not. It's the most schematically diverse league in the country. There's a lot going on there. There's, there's you, you see a little bit of everything offensively and defensively there now. But they've struggled to recruit good defensive linemen at those schools. I think you look at Baylor's defensive line. And they got Apuica as a transfer from LSU because he was following Dave Aranda. Uh, they, they grabbed Jackson Player as a, as a transfer from Tulsa. You look at those guys and you go, okay, that looks like a quality defensive line. But you don't see that as much around the Big 12. Oklahoma has got to figure out how to get that. You know, and Brent Venables had to go get a true nose as a transfer from Tulane. Because they didn't, they just didn't have one. Alex Grinch was not interested in having a 330 pound nose on his defense. It didn't, it wasn't part of his scheme. And, and he was a guy who, you know, he'd had success with 225 pound Hercules Mata'afa at Washington State as a D tackle. And so he thought, okay, I can, I can make this work. And, and you play Perry and Winfrey basically out of position and you say, well, he's athletic. He can do this. But 
he should have been a three technique. He should not have been worried about playing nose. I mean, this is, this is how they've got to change some things. And I think that's the most important thing. And even offensive line where they've had some good offensive lines at Oklahoma, you know, they had a Orlando Brown has become a really good NFL left tackle, but it's not a case where everybody who's come through there has been a pro prospect. Whereas like Georgia, Alabama, if you start there, there's a real good chance you're making an NFL roster. And Oklahoma needs to have an offensive line that has that level of talent. Now, I know we have another person up here who is patient enough to wait. Library football lady, we'd love to hear from you. Oh, Kimmy, what's up? Not much. How are you doing, Andy? How are we doing? Doing pretty good. Got to watch the Florida game yesterday. Was decently pleased with that. Um, But... Concerning what y'all were talking about with Oklahoma, I had never seen them looking that dysfunctional because I really didn't start following them till Stoops went to Oklahoma. So they've always been pretty good as long as I've been paying attention to college football. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. Defensively, they've been bad. You know, we've seen them be bad. 2018, the defense was legitimately terrible, but the offense was historically good. So it was hard to kind of parse the two and, and realize, okay, one side of the ball is horrible and one is great. In this case, when they lose Dale and Gabriel, the offense becomes pretty pedestrian. And so you see just how bad the defense is. And you, you cannot be that bad on defense when you are average to below average on offense. So I think that's the fear there is it, you know, it looks like it's going to be a while for before anybody sees Dylan Gabriel again. So I don't know what they do. I, I just, it, it bothers me that they can't from, just from a teaching and schematic standpoint, just get these guys to play the, you know, play their assignments and, and do what they need to do. One of the things that, that it feels like watching the K state game and watching the TCU game, their defensive ends and linebackers, whoever winds up being red in the read option, they're crashing so hard. Like, I'm going to get the back or I'm going to get the quarterback. They made the quarterback's decision to keep or give the ball away so easy for him. These are things that can be taught. This is not something you can say, well, Alex Trench didn't leave us any talent, so we're just not going to be good. No, you're getting paid millions of dollars if you're Brent Venables, if you're Ted Roof, the, the defense coordinator, to be better than this. And, and that's the part that bothers me a little bit. But – you know, if Quinn Ewers winds up playing for Texas this week, I worry a lot about that Oklahoma defense because that the Texas skill talent is excellent. Texas so, hurt them. Yeah, I mean, it, but it's one of those weird things, Kimmy. Both of those teams are going to be so up for that game. This is one, like, even when Texas couldn't beat very Kansas? average Big 12 teams <laughs> or Kansas, yeah, like when they're struggling against TCU under Gary Patterson. Texas got up for Oklahoma. So Texas will be up. Oklahoma will be up. You will see these teams at their best. So it may not look like, based on what we saw last week, because you'd assume, based on what we've seen so far this season, I know Texas lost to Texas Tech, but based on how they played against Alabama, how they looked against West Virginia, you think, okay, they're going to be able to move the ball pretty consistently on Oklahoma. Obviously, it looks that way on paper. I do feel like once you get to this game, when you get into the Cotton Bowl, you can't always predict it that way. So I think this will this will be the most up we see Oklahoma for the rest of the year. If it's not good enough, that's scary because that following week, I never thought I'd, I'd see this. But there's a real good chance Kansas would be favored against Oklahoma that following week. I'm loving this season so far. It's, it's been so good. weird. <laughs> the, the, the top like three or four have stayed pretty stable, though. Georgia trying to lose to Missouri was really weird. And I was really <laughs> rooting for that to happen. <laughs> yeah. I, so I think Missouri. Oh, trust had, me. We uh, all were. We all were. <laughs> I, so I, I, I don't know if I maybe I'm just trying to, to help the Gators get get an easy SEC first win. I'm thinking Missouri may have shot at shot. Like between the Auburn game and the Georgia game, they're gonna be like, 
Oh God, what else do we, what do we have to do to finally win one of these things? Let's forget it. Just forget it. But was that the closest they were going to get to the Calzada playing out of their mind moment? Oh my God. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because as I, I, so I'm in college station, I was at the, the Texas and press conference today and I was on CFBstats.com looking up the, the Zach Calzada game log passing stats from 2021. If you ever want to see a, one of these things does not look like the other call that page up. It's incredible. <laughs> oh. oh, that's great. Hey, um, Alec, you've been really patient. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, guys. Hi, Andy. My name's Alec. I uh, graduated from the University of Illinois in May with a journalism degree, and I'm fortunate enough to cover Kansas State now for Rivals. But I was wondering what your biggest tip or piece of advice would be for someone who's young and wants to be as successful as you are in this industry. Everybody matters. Everybody you meet matters. Every Talk to everybody. Get to know everybody. Like when you're covering a team like Kansas State, when you're on a beat, get to know everybody you can. You know, every person you get introduced to, make sure you remember their name. Try to get their phone number. And just just remember that that person you meet who is, is young and maybe doing something that, that is probably menial in, in the grand scheme of things. That person could be very important someday. And they will remember if you were nice to them, if you were kind to them, if you respected them. And they will also remember if you were a jerk to them. So I think that's that's the most important advice I could give. If you if you handle everybody like that, you're going to be fine. Thank you. I appreciate it. Looking forward to listening to your show tomorrow. Good luck. Thank you. Oh, man, Andy, that is like, I love that advice, I have to say, because that's what I teach as well. Some folks at different levels of their college careers, and I always tell them, like, look, you got to network. But networking is just like get to know people, get to like people, but also you can't avoid, you can't, you know, so many of these people you think are nobodies will then become somebody's. Well, and, and I've, had it, I've had it happen both ways. People I was, I was nice to and then people I was a jerk to who have been like, you were an asshole to me. When I was, you know, 18 years old, I'm like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. And, and you realize that it all matters. Every single interaction matters. Absolutely. You know, one other topic that's been kind of pressing these days, what do you think we've been now? I mean, I know it, it seems to have been kind of beaten in the ground last year, but now we're two seasons in NIL. How do you think it's looking right now? So I, I think we're getting closer to it sort of finding its level. And I realize that, that everybody in who's in the industry wants a congressional law. I don't think they're going to get it. But I do think that for the most part, these collectives and, and, and the people who are funding this are starting to understand that spending a lot of money on a 17-year-old is probably a fool's errand. That you're much better off if if you if you're a collective, if you're trying to to put some money into this, take care of the guys who have proven they're good already on the field in college, because that way they're going to stay with your school. They're going to be happy. And who knows, maybe if they're like a borderline, you know, sixth round free agent type guy, maybe they come back another year and be a, be a quality starter for another year. That stuff matters that, you know, you get two or three of those guys back you have a very different team the following year. And so I, I do hope that that's what's happening. I, I anecdotally, it seems like that's what's happening when I talk to, to people from collectives and I talk to athletic directors and coaches, it does seem like, you know, there's that, that one crazy quarterback contract out there, but it feels like not, a, not many other freshmen are get or, you know, recruits are getting that sort of deal. And I think that's smart because I, I think, committing a bunch of money to a 17 year old who hasn't proven anything yet. It's a very risky investment and you're probably not going to get your money out of it. And yeah, I think that wisdom is absolutely right there. And I think that's why I love college football as much of a sport as it is, because, you know, you could always talk about the NFL and parody, or you could talk about the pros being pros, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're in Alabama, a Georgia an Ohio state, or other some kind of like killing machine at the end of the day, you still have to get roughly about 115 uh, unpaid asterisk uh, 18 to 20 
22-year-old men to be coordinated, put together, put together a simple plan. And, you know, as a former 18 to 22-year-old man myself, I know how incredibly impossible that I, is to on a regular- I was an idiot when I was that age. Like, I can't even imagine <laughs> trying to deal with 115 of, the, of, of those idiots at once. And let alone, like, not even just dealing with them, but making sure that they stay successful in all the things that they do to make sure that they're winning football games on Saturdays. I think that's why I love the chaos of college football. That's why I love being able to see that any team could be upset at any time. I mean, granted, you're always going to have your favorites, but you're always going to see a situation where, you know, Ohio State goes and plays a game in Kinnick Stadium and gets 55 posted up on them. You're going to see incidents. Of, you know, Georgia goes to Mizzou and suddenly they're praying for a touchdown in the fourth quarter. Uh, you're going to see instances like that just because of the nature of this sport. Uh, but in a very similar vein, uh, you know, I think a lot of people uh, are kind of looking at this landscape for this season. And as much fun and chaos as it is, it kind of still seems right now that it's going to be Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, and pick a wild card for that fourth playoff spot. If we were to be able to put a magic wand over the remainder of this season, what would be the chaos that would be most plausible and fun to see? I'd say Tennessee winding up being the best team in the SEC East. That would be the chaos that would really make this fun. And I, I don't know if that's possible. I do think watching Georgia the last couple of weeks, that if, if they play the way they did against Kent State or against Missouri, they could lose to Tennessee. And I, I don't know if that necessarily means anything because Tennessee would have to to be good against everybody else too. Like they'd have to beat LSU, they'd have to beat Kentucky. But that's a fun team to watch. And you know, we we just assume that Georgia would dominate in the East, and and maybe they still will. Uh, they're certainly the most talented team in the East. But what we saw against Missouri for three quarters suggests that on the right day, you might be able to get them. So I think if that was the case, that really spices things up, especially that fan base that has suffered through all those coaches that didn't quite get it. And now they're in a place where that not only are they winning, they're winning in a very fun way. Like, I think that would be pretty crazy. Would there non-SEC craziness that we could see again. Because I think another one for me uh, that also would be absolutely wild is Michigan goes and for a second time beats Ohio State in order to just throw the Big Ten in disarray of who's going to be that playoff contender coming out of there as the champion. Uh, What are the odds of some kind of craziness like that happening in the Big Ten? So I think with J.J. McCarthy running the Michigan offense, you, you could see them put up a lot of points on everybody going forward, including Ohio State. The, the question I have is, is their defense capable of limiting Ohio State the way they did last year? I think, you know, Ojabo and Hutchinson made C.J. Stroud absolutely miserable last year. And I realize that the, the current Michigan D-line is pretty good. But I don't know that they're capable of limiting Ohio State's offense the way that the one last year did. Because I do think Michigan's offense will be pretty good. The problem is Ohio State's defense is now better than it was. So... Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm going to need to see it. I, I realize that Michigan kicked their butts last year, but given the recent history of that series, I'm, I'm going to need to see that be competitive against Ohio State before I believe it. You know, Andy, we want to respect your time. It's been about 45 minutes. Do you have a couple of extra minutes or do you need to take yeah, off? Yeah, let's really go. Nice. You know, by the way, I've been asking, how are you doing? I mean, you know, it was pretty chaotic last week. Mm-hmm. Did, how was it for you? Oh, as far as the hurricane goes, we were very lucky. I, I live near Gainesville, and so everything hit very far south of us. We have some friends that, that had to deal with a lot more serious stuff than we did. And, you know, I just I'm, – I'm very blessed that, that we didn't have to deal with too much. And so everything is going very well. I mean, life's good. The, the job's good, and, and I, I can't complain. You know, one thing I've been curious about, I, I know I've read interviews with you talking about that transition from being a walk-on during probably the most, I mean, you know, luck-wise, that was a pretty awesome year to be a walk-on at Florida. Very lucky. But, and then the decision to transition, you know, to a more career-focused path and, and having to leave football to become a, a sports journalist 
at the University of Florida and becoming a stringer at local papers. What was that like? What were those? Because it kind of goes back to what Alec was. I, I, I always find those kinds of questions interesting about not only what could you give guidance for someone who is starting out, but what was your process starting out? What what did you well, learn it, in those initial years? It was actually pretty easy for, for me to decide at the time because there was no other way to break in to what I wanted to do professionally. Like I needed to work for the school paper. I needed to string for, for professional papers in the state. I would have never gotten a job any other way. And so it was easy to make the decision to leave the football team. Had it been now, I would have stayed on the football team. I would have stayed on the football team, built my social media presence, would have done things while I was playing football because the lines are more blurred now and would have had a lot of fun doing it. But then it was much more black and white. Like you, you had, you, you could not cover sports for the school paper and be on one of the teams. It just, it was a rule of the paper and they weren't changing it for anybody. And so I, I had no choice really. So I think for me, it wasn't, it wasn't too hard, but I think, had this been a different time, like I look at Mike Golick Jr. and what he's done, you know, he played at Notre Dame. Now he was a very good football player. Like he started Notre Dame. If I had stayed on the team at Florida, I still would have never been a start. I would have been, you know, a guy who got in garbage time every once in a while toward the end of my career. But like Mike is so good on the mic. He's so good at talking and you can parlay your playing career into that now. And Back then, if you wanted to do it, it was much harder. Like you had to be really, really good on the team. And then maybe you get an audition at one of the networks. But I was never going to be that good. I was a very good writer. And so I knew that I had a chance that if I worked at the school paper and, and worked my way up, that I could get a job at a newspaper and then eventually become a. I. I think we may have had a mic cut out on Andy there for a second. <laughs> JD, did you? Are you still able to speak? I just want to make sure it's not on. Yeah, my I'm still here. Uh, so I'm hoping that uh, Andy is uh, phoned in, died, or something weird. else like that. Oh, there we go. There we go. Oh, I'm oh, back. Sorry, back. my my wife was trying to call me, but yeah, it would <laughs> it, it, it would have been it would have been yeah. much more interesting in the internet age where. I was, I was talking about some, to somebody about this earlier today. The internet really made things a lot more equitable for people trying to break into the business. I, I, you know, before you had to cover high schools, you had to kind of work your way up, or you had to know somebody. And I remember like when I was covering Florida in the early 2000s, that was when Spencer Hall was just getting started doing his blog at Every Day Should Be Saturday. This is when he still had... Oh, it was awesome. Yeah, I he remember. He still had a day job. That. You know, he was, I believe he was an intake counselor for refugees. Like he had a real job. And I remember reading his stuff and thinking, this guy is so much better than me and most of the other people who are getting paid to write. Like, why why do we have all these barriers to entry to this industry? Like, this guy belongs because he's good. And I think the internet took a lot of those barriers to entries to entry away. So it's a, it's a very different environment now where if you have a passion and a talent, you can get it out there and, and people will find it. You know, Eddie, as you got started, I just wanted to, to follow up, you know, you were probably going back and interviewing some of your former teammates yeah. immediately. How did that? How was I that got happen? yelled at one time because uh, they'd given up. Uh, so I played offensive line. And the offensive line coach and several of my former uh, line mates got very mad at me because I mentioned that they'd given up a, a certain number of sacks. And they're like, you know, a couple of those were the back's fault. I'm like, I know. But a couple of them were your fault, too. <laughs> like, so I'm sorry. I have to point that out. But no, it, it was fine. Everybody's pretty cool about it. Because I think, you know, those guys understood that I knew what they were dealing with. So I was not going to try to criticize them unfairly. I knew what, you know, I knew they were going to class. I knew how, how hard it was to manage all that, that time and figure out what to do. And so I, I, I've tried to do that as I go forward. Just respect the fact that these guys are, are college students. They're trying to deal with a lot of crap at once. There's a lot you're going through as a college student. You know, you're falling in love for the first time. A lot of the time you're, 
you're you're dealing with some grown-up stuff that you've never dealt with before for the first time and you're trying to be on this this team that thousands of people are paying attention to i i, I admire like when i meet these these college players who are you know they've gotten their bachelor's degree in three years and they're on their master's degree and they're still playing really well. And it's like, how do you even do that? Like you make me feel like a complete failure because there's no way I could have pulled this off. Andy, you also have the special insight as a former player. When you talk about, when you talk to these younger guys who are currently going through all their stuff, what would you say is the biggest difference that's happening between guys when you were playing and guys who are playing today in terms of challenges that they have to face? Now, granted, you know, everybody's got to go into the workroom to go lift weights. Everybody's got to go learn scheme. But what's inherently different about college football players and the learning curve today as opposed to when you were playing? There's a camera on everybody's phone. Like, you're under a microscope constantly. When I was a freshman in college in 1996, if you wanted to get a picture of somebody out into the public, you had to take the photo. You had to go get it developed at Eckerd. You know, maybe you got doubles of it. Maybe you got the, maybe you kept the negatives. Then you had to figure out a way to get it on the internet, which most people didn't even have. Most people didn't have any sort of hardwire connection. We're all on dial up at that point. Like it just wouldn't happen. Now, if you have even a moment of stupidity as a college football player, it's immortalized forever. And I feel like that's a lot of pressure to deal with because everybody's watching you and everybody can instantly put everything on the Internet. Absolutely. I, I, I can think about things I wrote in, in that era. I mean, you know. I think you're only we're, we're very close in age, Andy. So I'm just thinking about the stuff I wrote in the 90s. And I'm like, my God, I was so stupid. Oh, and I'm, I'm so glad the archives of the school paper at Florida have been purged. So you can't <laughs> read what I wrote. It's fantastic. In the dead of night, you, you went back there with a torch. <laughs> exactly. Now, um, <laughs> gosh, you know, it was so funny. Even when you joked about when you were talking about what happened with the call. At first, I'm like, imagine you were using old dial up and, you know, no, no, I'm on the field. You know, that's the exactly. Of, that's the end of the Twitter chat. I, I'm downloading <laughs> these songs on Napster. What are you doing? Somebody picked up a receiver. Damn it. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, Andy, we really, we really appreciate you taking the time tonight to talk to us. We know it's been about an hour, and we want to respect your time. Thanks so much. It was great chatting with you. Oh, it's a pleasure. I I, uh, I lurk on the on the subreddit sometimes, so I, I'm I'm fascinated to see what everybody's talking about and. You know, that's that's one of the things that helps me do my job is understand what everybody wants to know about, what everybody's talking about. And so uh, you guys are a valuable resource for me. And you're a valuable resource for us. So thanks again. And for those of you out there, obviously, you know, Andy Staples, you can find him on The Athletic Radio on Sirius XM. He's got the podcast, The Andy Staples Show and Friends. Don't need to tell you much more than that. You can find him just about anywhere. You know, I just wanted to, as we're kind of closing this up, I wanted to thank all of you who were able to call in. That was some great chat from Fishy Alec and Library Football Lady. That was great to hear from both of you. This was RCFB Talk 85. My name is Bob Akairi. My co-host is J.D. Moore. Thank you all for joining us. It was great talking to you all. And now I'm going to hang up and listen.